Hello and welcome to another edition of Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters and really excited for you to join me again this week. And we've got a bit of a different episode. It's going to be a little uh, change up kind of from what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. And and I'm really excited to bring in Tommy Haynes, a documentary filmmaker from Northland Films who has really made hockey a part of his uh, art, essentially. Um, he has previously directed very popular um, and, and intriguing documentaries, one about uh, pond hockey. You may have seen it, pond hockey documentary, uh, where they follow a, a team at the very first ever U.S. pond hockey championships and, and interview a whole bunch of people about you know, the passion of, of outdoor hockey. And uh, it's a really fun documentary that came out around 2008. And then in 2010, Forgotten Miracle, the documentary about the 1960 U.S. Olympic hockey team that won the first ever gold medal. Um, and, and it is, I own both of these movies and they're fantastic. And Tommy has another movie coming out very soon that I think will be of particular interest to Talking Hockey Sense listeners and the people that follow Hockey Sense with Chris Peters because... It is all about uh, Minnesota high school hockey, and uh, the movie is called Hockey Land. It should be out this summer. Uh, Tommy's going to explain a little bit of the the hockey, but you know it's really fascinating. They they embedded with with two high schools in northern Minnesota, including Hermantown, uh, which uh, has been one of the real powers of late, and then they also went to Eveleth, where you know if you know much about USA hockey, Eveleth was such an important place for the number of players that came out of the Iron Range in, uh, in Minnesota in the very early days of, of USA Hockey and, and, and U.S. national teams, a lot of, of the all-time greats before the really players started getting into the NHL came from Eveleth, Minnesota. So I think you're going to really enjoy that that conversation because we talk a lot about process. But another reason this is a different episode is I've, I've finally decided to do a Q&A with, with my listeners. I, you know, I'm really excited to do it. I've heard it on a lot of other podcasts but I want to, you know, kind of throw it out there, and uh, it's all in, inspired in part by the fact that if you are a subscriber to Hockey Sense with Chris Peters on Substack on Friday, my draft rankings dropped. Uh, so top forty-five players. If you want access to that, it is part of the paid subscription option on Hockey Sense with Chris Peters. So please, if you have not yet, take a look. See if you know you only have to do a month subscription to get access to everything. Um, and if you don't want to continue after that, you can cancel right away, or you can do an annual subscription or a su- supporting subscription. All are welcome. I really appreciate everybody that supported the website so far. And I've gotten some great feedback on the NHL draft rankings. And we will talk heavily about the NHL draft in this episode, particularly in the QA section. But I've got a few other notes that I want to want to get to as well. So we're going to do the QA in portion. After the interview with Tommy, uh, because I, I I just really part of the reason to get him on here is because you know th- things are starting to kind of build for this this movie that he's got coming out in the summer, um, and I just think that uh, it was a little something different, a little change of pace as we kind of gotten out of the college season, uh, moving into more of the draft season. I'll also talk a lot about today the World Under 18 Championship, which I'll be going to in Texas. It starts next week. Um, and so we'll have a little bit of a preview there, but yeah, so basically this is kind of all that's going on right now. We've got a lot to get to, so I'm going to start this off. I'm going to send this over to my interview with Tommy Haynes in just a second, but once again, want to remind you that it is really important to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it. We need more reviews. We need more ratings. We need you to, your help to, to get this podcast out if you really enjoy it. 
and you'd like to support it further, one of the best ways to do that is through just sharing uh, on social media, telling friends, and then also providing ratings and reviews on the various podcast apps of your preference so that it kind of uh, lets more people know what's out there and what's available. And, and I'm so thankful for that. And also, if you do subscribe to Substack with Chris Peters on uh, Hockey Sets with Chris Peters on I'm one of these days going to get my own title right on the podcast. But anyway, if you subscribe to Hockey Sense with Chris Peters on Substack, that's hockeysense.substack.com. That is another way to help support this podcast. It's all part of the same media operation. I'm completely independent. I'm completely by myself. I'm really reliant on subscribers. So uh, I will continue to shamelessly plug that website and, and ask for subscriptions because basically that's how I get to keep doing what I'm doing. And if you enjoy it uh, and you want me to keep doing it, I will need uh, your, your assistance in doing that. So uh, yeah, but this has been so much fun. The podcast has really been one of the things where, where it never, ever feels like work. It's just so much fun to talk to you every single week. And I hope that you've enjoyed the content that we've been able to provide and the interviews that we've been able to provide. And if you haven't, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, make sure to go back to the archives. Look at, you know, we've had Bob McKenzie, John Butchergross, Corey Promman. We had Ryan S. Clark last week, Nate Ewell from College Hockey Inc. We've had a lot of different guests from a lot of different facets of, of hockey media and we're going to have more guests in the near future that are more on the inside of the game um, I'm, I'm going to start working on that a little bit more uh, as well so plenty to get to in today's podcast we're going to start it off with my interview with Tommy Haynes and then after that you come back stick around we'll have a full Q&A it'll be very draft centric uh, very prospect heavy and once we get to that, I, I cannot wait to uh, you know continue this process of doing these Q and A's and everything else. So uh, my thanks again for you listening today. We'll start things off with my interview with Tommy Haynes of Northland Films. Well, when I started this podcast, I wanted to make sure that I brought in a lot of, a variety of voices that that you know either cover hockey or are involved in hockey and and this is one of our our more unique guests today and i'm really excited to be joined by tommy haynes of northland films who has uh, been combining passions uh with hockey and filmmaking and so you are our first filmmaker but tommy wanted to welcome you in to talking hockey sense and, and really appreciate you joining us this week yeah thanks for having me on chris this, uh, this is great yeah well you work you People should know you from hockey movies before Pond Hockey, which was a kind of a, a cult classic documentary in the hockey communities in uh, in the mid you know the, the mid two thousands I guess you could say or late two the late aughts if you will yep and uh, and then you also had Forgotten Miracle, which is one of my favorite hockey documentaries about the nineteen sixty team. But now you're working on a project called Hockeyland. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I'm really excited to see uh, this all come together. Yeah, we got really, really fortunate. Um, it's It's been something that I've been wanting to make for about a decade. Since Forgotten Miracle came out in 2010, we were looking at doing some, you know, northern Minnesota town uh, and trying to follow like a, a, a day in the life of one of these like hockey teams. And so we were looking into towns like Greenway and Virginia, Minnesota and Ely, Minnesota, and and kind of stumbled upon Eveleth and, and Hermantown. It didn't really originally want to cover two high schools, but we're so captivated by both programs and what was happening with both those programs um, this past year that uh, we decided to give it a shot and see how we could make a film with while covering two schools 
And, and just to give you a little more background on the schools, you know, Hermantown, if you're not from Minnesota, is this kind of new hockey mecca. Um, mm-hmm. They've really become a dynasty in the last 10 years. Um, they go to state every single year. Um, they, they churn out, you know, Division One players left and right. Um, current NHLers, even Neil Pionk playing for the Winnipeg Jets. So they're, they're really a powerhouse. We wanted, we wanted to find out what was going on with that program, why they were so successful, and what, what, what kind of made that program work. But then we also were, were curious about Eveleth, which, which is like this classic Minnesota high school hockey program, you know, that won the first uh, ever high school hockey tournament back in the 40s. And, you know, it's been kind of a slow decline for them over the last like 50, 60 years. And so, and we knew that they were going to consolidate with their neighboring school, Virginia. And so this is one of the last seasons that the, this Golden Bears from the Eveleth team would, would ever exist. So we want to make sure that we captured and documented that. Um, and so that's how it all got started. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those that, you know, obviously everybody knows about high school hockey in Minnesota, but I think there is a there's a different level when it comes to northern Minnesota. And I you're you're familiar with that as well. I mean, is this this is this is a very personal project for you, isn't it? Yeah, I grew up uh, on the Iron Range and uh, it was 1981. We moved there and I was five years old at the time. And, you know, as as most uh, hockey fans know, the Miracle on Ice happened the year before that. So every every mm-hmm. kid in northern Minnesota w- was skating, every kid in the block. That's what you did. Um, you know, I think seven of the 20 um, Miracle on Ice guys are from northern Minnesota, from Duluth on up to right. Roseau. Um, so that's pretty incredible. And 13 of those guys are from Minnesota in general. So you could basically form an Olympic team with just Minnesotans that year. So uh, I kind of got caught in the, the excitement and uh, fervor for uh, for hockey when I was five, and it, it's never gone away. And so the town I was from is called Mountain Iron. Um, grew up playing on this little rink called South Grove Rink, uh, same rink as Matt Niskanen. Um, so yeah, really got into hockey and wanted to kind of return to my roots in a way. Uh, and see what's happening. So Eveleth is very close. In fact, Mountain Iron is consolidating with Eveleth this next year. So um, a lot of a lot of personal reasons for me to cover this this story as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for people that don't know, Eveleth is really one of the at one point was really like the the center of American hockey, um, and really is part of USA Hockey's history. Is dotted with people from Eveleth, and it's where the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame resides as well. And, and you, you know, people always wonder why is it way up there? Well, it's like this is this is the only place it could be when that when it was formed, just because it was such a such an integral part of of everything. So, you know, I guess having the opportunity to to work with this team and and you know, this is pre-pandemic, right, where you've been able to actually be embedded with these teams. So it it, it actually, you know, we had a normal season. The high school, the Minnesota high school hockey season of 2019-20 was kind of the last <laughs> the the last normal thing to happen in 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 2020 we had a we had a state tournament and we were lucky to have one this year as well but you know so i mean just what what was the process like of getting embedded with these two teams and you know i at, at that time hermantown had blake biondi who was you know one of the best players in the in the state and uh, one of the most highly regarded draft prospects at the time so i mean this was a really exciting time to be with these two schools so i, I just what was that process like of getting into those two programs? It was a challenge. Uh, just, just not because the communities weren't super welcoming, but just for us to be able to film this whole project within four months um, and get the trust of these families that quickly mm-hmm. um, was going to be difficult for us. And so, you know, we, we did our best just to kind of not be too intense right away, just kind of have our cameras off in the corners and, and, and lay a little low. But, um, 
you know, as the process went on, we got to know the Biondis really well. We got to know the Dowd family really well from Hermantown and, and, and a few of the Evola families as well. And it, it really became a story of just four boys, like four boys from these two towns. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing to be just become very good friends with them. I, as I make documentaries, you find this over and over again is it starts out with an idea that, that soon becomes, uh, more than that and you build these relationships and friendships with the people that you're kind of you're filming and so they become collaborators in a way um you know so uh yeah it was it was a pretty amazing journey for us and like you said we finished uh shooting i think on march 8th last year i think that was mr hockey award ceremony which blake won right um and then i think the state shut down just two days later so we we wrapped principal photography two days before the pandemic like really hit, hit so we got so lucky so lucky yeah, I mean, geez, yeah, that is that I think really like the the day the world stopped, I think was like March 11th, where everything just like, that's it, we're done. This is it. So yeah, I mean, and and what a, what a great bit of fortune to be with Hermantown for that season as well, just in terms of the all the different drama that came from that season. And, and obviously having Blake Biondi win Mr. Hockey is, you know, the, the pinnacle for any Minnesota high school hockey player. Yeah. Um, pretty it's it's funny how that works out when you're <laughs> when a plan comes together like that so uh i mean as, as you kind of followed the season and, and it unfolded you know could you could you even believe kind of the, the good fortune that you had with with the story that you were going to be able to tell with that uh yeah i think with with films that become great films you need to you do need a little bit of luck but we do mm-hmm. we did try to research that's what i was saying before with the 10 years of kind of looking at what stories we wanted to cover we knew Hermantown was going to be in contention and we knew Blake was going to be a Mr. Hockey finalist. So that stuff we did know beforehand. Um, they were coming off of like a, a pretty tragic loss to Greenway the year before. So you, you had a sense that Hermantown was not going to be screwing around this year. Um, and we we're going to make a serious run. Um, and then the Eveleth guys, you know, they had 15 seniors on the 20 person roster. So um, just a not only drama, but just like the emotions of that with these guys, this is it for them. Um, we want to make sure we captured that. So I, I do think we did enough research knowing that there was going to be, you know, just a lot going on in this, in this season for both schools. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, just kind of knowing and following Minnesota high school hockey, this is, you know, when I saw that this was a project that was, was happening, I was really excited about it. Um, you know, from a, a mutual friend, Tom Snee, who, mm-hmm. you know, has kind of hit me off and, and I, I was, I thought, well, this is just perfect. So, um, and, and the fact that you, you know, we're kind of, you're in, you're in, you, you've kind of gone through all the principal photography and everything. So I guess where, where does the project stand now? And what are some of the things that you're doing currently to, uh, you know, kind of finish off the project? Yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah, Tom's a great guy, by the way. Uh, his, yeah. brother, his brother, Mike runs college hockey Inc. Um, right. the, the sneeze are great, great Duluthians. Um, but yeah, we're, we're uh, right now in the middle of uh, the sound mixing stage. So we just finished the score last week, um, and now it's out at Skywalker Sound where they make all the Star Wars films and, and Black Panthers and all those things. They actually took on our project to do the sound mix for. So that'll take roughly three to four weeks, and then we will try to find a big festival in the summer to launch it at. And then hopefully, I mean, fingers crossed, but this pandemic settles down and we can do some theatrical stuff in the, in the fall, specifically in Minnesota and, and just hockey communities across the country. Um, and just, yeah, kind of tour around with the film at that point in time. Yeah, that's, that'd be, that'd be great. That'd be really fun. And I, I think, uh, you know, there's also a Kickstarter going on right now. I just, I did want to bring that up because I, I mean, you guys had tremendous success with that, with a lot of people 
backing you. So, I mean, there's a lot of belief in this project as well. I think that's one of the benefit of, of, you know, kind of starting a Kickstarter or, or in my case, starting a small business with subscriptions, trying to, trying to get people to, to sign on and, and believe in your, you know, your vision as well. So, I mean, you know, as, as a filmmaker, it's gotta be difficult to make these kinds of movies. So I guess, you know, th- things like that, I'm just kind of wondering about the process of, you know, getting things through Kickstarter and trying to, you know, get the funding for something like this. I mean, what's the process like? And, and, and is that, uh, is that one of the more challenging elements of, of documentary filmmaking? That for, for sure is just because most, most docs don't have the million dollar budgets that, uh, you know, the big, the big Star Wars and action films you see. So it is a struggle to, you know, raise the, you know, normally doc budgets are about a half a million dollars. So you got to raise that. And we, as is Northland Films, kind of self-financed most of this. So the Kickstarter was a nice moment for us to be like, let's see what kind of community backing, community support we can get, you know, as we're in the finishing stages here. Um, and, and so it's, it was just nice to see people come out in the masses to help make that Kickstarter successful. And you, I mean, I think I think across the country and including Canada too, there's just such a, a tight-knit group of, of hockey fans and it's a hockey community out there that, that I think will be excited about this type of film. Um, even though it's Minnesota, even some East Coasters uh, and some Canadians yeah. might, might, might like it. They might relate to the stories that, that we found here in Minnesota. Um, and so I'm excited, yeah, to have this film finally released, uh, you know, late summer, early fall. Yeah, I, well, I'm certainly excited to see it, and and you know, I, I'm familiar with your previous work as well. I, I you know, I mentioned that you know, Pond Hockey was was a very popular documentary um, in the hockey world, and I think you know the stories that you've told essentially are these these community and passion stories, um, especially an even forgotten miracle, you know, national pride and and guys that were. Olympians, but we're going back to the firehouse after the Olympics were over and just a, these, these kind of, um, you know, kind of step out of your body almost and in, in to, to, for these experiences and, you know, pond hockey where you're following different people and, and, and then obviously the Olympians, and now we're going to have the, the, the high school element and, and there's a bit of community there, but I mean, you know, when did you kind of realize that, that, that both hockey and, and filmmaking were going to make a good match for you when you, when you started in your career? Well, first of all, my my fiction world, I was trying to make some fiction films earlier on and they were terrible. So uh, I think <laughs> documentaries kind of naturally uh, was, the, was the direction for me. But a funny story was I was uh, in film school in 2004 and went out to Sundance uh, and watched a bunch of films out there. Um, one was Napoleon Dynamite and I met the director after the show and I said, you know, do you have any advice for an upstart filmmaker? And he said, yeah, just do what you know. And it had been a time when I had moved away from Minnesota. I was living in California, then in Iowa. And, you know, until you leave Minnesota, you don't really fully grasp the level of, like, uh, just hockey fanaticism in Minnesota and the hockey community in Minnesota. It's so big. And so it was something that, you know, after that meeting, I was I was thinking, yeah, maybe we can do something around hockey. And just that happened to be that next year was the first annual U.S. Pond Hockey Championships. And so we met with the organizers of that. And we're like, this is great because we were watching films like Murder Ball at the time and Dogtown and Z-Boys Riding Giants, all these new docs that were coming out that were kind of exciting and new and, and weren't your standard like um, 1990s and 80s docs that were just very uh, straightforward and, and a little mm-hmm. bit boring, honestly. Um, so we, I was influenced by both both my film school uh, upbringing there and my childhood in, in Mountain Iron and kind of those two all merged by the time it was 2005 when I was finishing film school and the pond hockey championships just starting. So, you know, like a lot of things in life, it's just a lot of luck and a lot of doors opening at the right time and just knowing when to go through those doors. 
Yeah. Yeah. Timing really is everything. And you know, that, that documentary, you follow, you know, a, adults that are holding on to the dream kind of in, in getting this opportunity to play at, in the pond hockey championships. And I, I, I just love that, uh, you know, the, the characters that come out of that. I mean, it's, there's, it's reality. It's not, it's, it's, it's like upscale. It's not reality TV. It's just this upscale kind of look and being a fly on the wall, which is, I think of the kinds of documentaries that people just have really gravitated towards. Um, especially when it's not something that's historical based, but then you did transition into a historical film uh, with, with, I think what has become an essential part of us hockey history, the, the documentary forgotten miracle, um, because that was a story that wasn't told as comprehensively or as clearly and thankfully told at the time that it was because we've lost, you know, some of the members of that team, um, you know, and, and lost coach Jack Riley and, and, to have their voices in that documentary is such an important historical artifact of, of a team that, that really is, is hugely important to USA hockey. So I wonder for, for you, when did that idea come into play and, and what was that process like being able to tell that story in a way that, that had never been done before? Well, you know, while we're shooting pond hockey, not only were we following some of the guys that were in the tournament, we were also interviewing some big names, you know, Gretzky, Crosby, Patrick Kane was in his rookie season at the time. So it was really fun meeting all those guys. But at the same time, we were meeting, you know, a bunch of old legends of the game, like John Mayasich, um, played in the 56 and the 60 Olympic team. Willard Eichel played in the 56 team. Wendy Anderson is a former governor of Minnesota, played in the 56 team. So we were meeting all these guys during the shooting of pond hockey. And I think it was Mayasich when we were interviewing him, he was bringing up this 60 Olympic team, which, you know, at, at the time, I think it was 29 or 39. And I naively had not really heard of them before. And I'm like, wait a minute, there was a there was a miracle before the miracle on ice. I, I didn't know about that. <laughs> and so that really was the spark that was of curiosity for us um, to pursue that a little more and see, like, what's happening with that. And we already knew John then at that point in time. So we asked him if we can come up to Eveleth and film some more. And then he connected us, I think, to some of the old... 1960 guys and uh that's how the the whole thing kind of took off and we we shot that film really fast because we wanted to make sure we were we were getting it in time for the the 50th anniversary um so we shot it in literally um six months edited it in six months and had it out in a year so it was really rapid fire on that film but um but yeah like you said uh, key timing not just because of the 50th anniversary but you know, these guys are getting old. They're in their 80s now. And um, so we want to make sure we captured their voices and their story before they passed. Yeah. And it, it is such a the other thing that that I love about that film is it gives you an opportunity to see, you know, a lot of action footage that was not mm-hmm. readily available. You know, you see different things like Bill Cleary scoring an insane goal or, you know, like all the skill of the players of that time and the the, the talents of the, the Soviets and the Czechs and the Canadians and just the, the, the different stories. And there was also a bit of, you know, kind of illustration involved too, to kind of help retell some of the stories, which I, I thought was great. But, you know, I think Jack Riley is maybe one of the the forgotten heroes of, you know, hockey as a whole. Um, you know, he, he was the head coach at West Point for so long, you know, passed away a few years ago. His family continues, the family coaching tree continues at, at uh, Army with Brian and and you know his his grandson is uh, Brett is now the the head coach at at Long Island University. So it's just generations that he's created. But you know one of the other things that that story tells is is the story of of Herb Brooks and and the you know it, it's kind of mythologized now. Um, but that was maybe one of the clearest representations of 
what actually happened. And I thought that that was such a, such a neat thing to hear from. I mean, you know, were there any other things over the course of that, that whole process that um, really stood out to you as, as moments that, that, you know, hockey fans should be more aware of? Well, yeah, the Herb Brooks cutting, the last guy cutting that team to bring in the Cleary brothers was a, a pretty big one, right? Um, but yeah, just, I mean, all, all of the stuff that was happening with USA Hockey at that point in time, there's so much um, development going on with, within hockey. Um, John Mayesich talks about, you know, kind of being one of the earliest um, people to develop a slap shot. And he, he talks about it as a, as a good and bad thing. It was fun for them to be practicing that and kind of learning from some some guys that were playing the pros, like the Blackhawks, like just starting to do the slap shot at that point in time. But then also kind of like he, he also says, you know, he's he's saddened by the slap shot in a little ways too because it limited some of the creativity that was was around before that with the, just the passing and the one touch and all, and all that. So, but just hearing uh, these guys' stories, like you, like you had alluded to with the the firefighter Jack Crane, like gets back and goes to do, you know, be a fireman. And like the day after the Olympics, there was no fanfare. Um, you know, it's really. I think all three of these hockey projects. One of the main themes is just this element of nostalgia, and and obviously pond hockey is that kind of goes to the roots of the game. Uh, the 1960 team, you know, was the very first uh, Olympics televised for the Winter Olympics. So. Um, these guys weren't do, doing it for the same type of glory that maybe the, the guys are today. So there's there's some uh, nostalgia force in that. And then and then you know this current film Hockey Land with these boys still you know uh, snowmobiling and shoveling rooftops and you know helping their dad working at the mine or whatever it may be, going hunting and fishing, playing three sports. Uh, it just it just seems from another era uh, almost. And so I was I was. Um, interested to see if that was actually true uh and 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 most of it probably most of it was i mean they have iphones and they do instagram and all that but uh a lot of it's still uh there's a lot of nostalgic quality still present yeah there and excuse me uh, you know i think the other thing is it's it's almost a, a bit of a full circle as you mentioned you know john mayasich the legend of really one of the great players in the history of american hockey never played in the nhl yeah but he, we're talking evolith you know, Evelith continues to come up with the guys from that 60 team. There were quite a few from the iron range on that team as well. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of neat to, to have this kind of full circle moment where a lot of the things that were happening for John Mayasich at the time, and I, and I believe the arena in Evelith is probably the same one that he played in, wasn't, wasn't it? Or, oh, yeah, the, the Hippodrome up there. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same yeah. Arena. yeah. So, I mean, it's really cool to, to kind of have that full circle kind of thing. And, and, I did also want to bring up, you, you know, you, you don't just make movies about hockey. You know, you guys have had some critical acclaim uh, come your way at Northland Films for, for saving Brinton as well, which was, a, you know, kind of a, a, a unique tale about a unique figure. And, and I think the origin story of, of kind of that movie, uh, as, as I recall it, it, is pretty unique. You know, basically kind of a, a story of found treasure. Uh, mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that, because I think if you're a fan of movies and filmmaking, this is one and, and, you're, and you're, you're a history buff, too. I think this is one that you might might enjoy. So I, tell us a little bit about Saving Brenton, which which you guys got uh, an awful lot of attention for. Yeah, well, we, I mean, again, just making sure we're uh, keeping our, our eyes open for stories all the time and our ears out. So and this, we, we heard about this guy, a 70 year old uh, retired history teacher down in the middle of Iowa. Um, had found this old collection of films and stuff that most of your listeners probably don't know about, even I didn't know about at the time, uh, you know, old George Melies films and turn of the century stuff, Thomas Edison, uh, the very first films that were ever made. He found a, a massive collection of these films and uh, just in a shed in Iowa. And uh, we, we ended up 
learning about this fairly early, early on in the process, and we ended up following him for three years as he brought these films kind of back to life and ended up showing them in this old old theater in Iowa from 1897, one of the oldest, run, actually the, the oldest operating cinema in the world. Um, so that was, yeah, that was quite the journey. It was nice to have one, you know, kind of close to home. We could, we could film him pretty easily. Um, this, this past year with Hockeyland, it was, it was always tough because we had to travel, you know, to the, to Eveleth, which was a seven hour drive from my house. So, um, that was a little trickier with the, with the commute, but, um, yeah, you know, Saving Britain was great. Uh, yeah, one of the top 10, uh, docs of the year in Washington Post. So it, was, it got a lot of great acclaim and, uh, really proud of that film. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know, I think it's it's one of those things where it's just such a, a unique story. And, you you know, you, you love the characters that, that you end up finding in, in this uh, in this environment. So, yeah, I mean, that's selfishly, you know, I mean, it's always good to talk hockey with somebody that's uh, that's also in Iowa. Um, you know, so, I mean, we've uh, we've that's a, that's another connection between it with Tommy and I, not just the passion for hockey, but but in Iowa. I mean, how, how do you stay close to the game um, in, in Iowa City? Well, I keep I keep inventing projects so I can come to Minnesota to, to film <laughs> film more hockey. Don't don't tell my wife, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a little trickier. But you know, we have a new ECHL team uh, hitting hitting Iowa City next year. Um, the Rough Riders USHL team is just 25, 30 minutes away, and a lot of Minnesota guys come down and play with with the Rough Riders. So there's ways. But now, I mean, obviously with the pandemic, I could stream not only the college and pro games, but I could stream the high school games this year. So it's been almost easier than ever to stay, stay in touch with, with the hockey game. Um, so yeah, I, I do my best, but it's tough Two little kids too. So it's, it's not always the easiest, but I, I do my best. I love, I love the game. I'm always, a, I'm, I've been a fan of the game since I've been five, watched Brett Hall for, for the Bulldogs, uh, back in the eighties. And, you know, so, it, it, and Neil Broughton was a, one of my favorite as a kid too, played in North stars. So, uh, and New Jersey, but, uh, yeah, so I've been a long time fan of uh, hockey and I'm, I'm sure no matter where I'm living, I'll, I'll, I'll keep, keep my eye on it somehow. Yeah. And you know, you, you've mentioned in some of the promotional uh, materials about how this is uh hockey land is kind of the, the, the conclusion of a trilogy almost, uh, you know, of, of pond hockey and, and forgotten miracle. I mean, do you, do you anticipate that uh, that hockey will be part of your, your filmmaking career still, or, do, or is it just more of a situation where you kind of just tell the stories as they come to you? Definitely more the latter that as they come, but I could see this becoming a Fast and Furious uh, series of nine potentially. Yeah, why not? Uh, if, <laughs> if the stories are there, and we've already had uh, people have been pitching us new ideas about doing you know a female version of of Hockey Land, or uh, we we have ideas come to us all the time. So I, I yeah, it's hard to see this ending with three, but at the same time, I, I really think these three do do a nice job of kind of encapsulating at least the passion uh, for hockey in the states. Uh, it's it's yeah, I think that's pretty present in this film. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that just really stands out is just the, you know, kind of a, a picture of passion. And that's really, you know, if you're, if you, if you fall in love with hockey, it's hard to not fall really hard for hockey. You know, it's just, it's, it gets in you. And, and I think having films like this that showcase that is, is a really neat thing. And, and, you know, I, I think the, I guess the only other thing that I wanted to, to ask you about and um, you know, just kind of as we're getting through this, but you know, how can people uh, kind of follow Hockeyland? How can they, follow, you know, can they still get involved in the Kickstarter? What are some of the ways that people can potentially, um, you know, help out or and or follow the process and, and potentially see this uh, when it comes out in the summer? Yeah, well, I think we're just at HockeylandMovie.com and uh, we have all the socials, I think, on there that you can get attached to. The Kickstarter is officially over, but we are still looking for one or two producers to come on board so they can okay. email us. 
uh, productions at Northland Films if they're interested in becoming a producer. But yeah, we should uh, we should have. I mean, a lot of news is going to be coming out in the next couple months about you know where to see this film, um, and we're excited to, to get this thing out there. Um, I saw that you had Bucci Grass on uh, a week or two. Yeah. Ago. He's he's one of our favorites too in the industry, and uh, has a has a passion for the game. And I was lucky enough to meet him while shooting pond hockey uh, back in 07. We went to visit his outdoor rink uh, in Connecticut. Um, and so, but he's been a long time ambassador of the game, especially the, the college hockey game, which is honestly my favorite. I, I love the mm-hmm. NHL, I love high school, but college hockey is something about it. Uh, that, that's, that's fun to watch. And, um, it was fun watching the last frozen four. I was hoping for the Bulldogs to pull that one out, but that UMass team was, uh, they were, they were a tough one and, uh, yeah. they, they didn't even have their starting goaltender really against, uh, the Bulldogs and still kind of found a way to find a way to win that game in overtime. Yeah, I know. Yeah. What a, what a story that team became. I mean, they had, they, they had a goalie out for COVID protocols and then they, then he was able to come back and shuts out the, the, the Huskies, St. Cloud Huskies in the, uh, in the championship game, just a wild, wild team that, uh, that team might make a good documentary someday, but yeah, yeah, but, but Tommy, this is so great. I I really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to share the story. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate your films and, and the fact that, we have, we have these different avenues to showcase the passion for hockey. And, and if you haven't yet, folks, please do check out the, the, the movies and also northlandfilms.com um, uh, where, where Tommy's uh, the whole library can, uh, you can learn more about each film and, and Tommy, all the best to you with this, with this next venture. I, I really can't wait to see it. I think it's going to be a great, great movie and uh, a great documentary. And, and yeah, let's hope for uh, hope for the best and hope we see it in, in the summer and so, gives us something else to look forward to in this time where we're, we're always looking for things to look forward to. So uh, yeah. thanks a lot for joining talking hockey sense this week. Hey, no, thanks for having me on Chris and uh, good luck with the podcast. Uh, I'm excited to hear more shows. I'm, I'm subscribed and I'm ready to, ready to go each week. All right. Great. Thanks a lot, Tommy. Once again, my thanks to Tommy Haynes of Northland Films for coming on, and, and that was a lot of fun to talk about uh, a bit of a different side of, of hockey, and, and certainly um, there have been so many great hockey documentaries out there, and, and he's now about to contribute his third to the to the process, so uh, many thanks to him, and a quick shout out to Andrew Sherburn and JT Haynes as well, uh, also of Northland Films, who are, have been working on on those movies, and are, are great partners at Tommy's, and, and really, again, thanks thanks to them. All right, so now it's time to get to the Q&A portion. And, you know, you always wonder what kind of questions you're going to get uh, from listeners. And, in you know, uh, certainly we'll continue to do this. But I, I was really impressed with a lot of the questions because it covers a lot of the ground that I was hoping that we could cover in this. And, and after the Q&A, I have a couple of other things that I need to add just kind of as, uh, uh, you know, things that you need to know coming into this week and, and kind of where things are going in the next couple of weeks. Uh, with both the website and the podcast, but uh, was really impressed by the questions that I got, and I got quite a few, so we're going to get rolling right away. And the first comes from at Starlax underscore HS, and with the past two seasons being essentially cut short, are NHL teams worried about long-term growth issues for the players? The talk of the past couple of seasons is the lack of elite talent in this one. So it's a good question because I think, you know, we, we have talked about it a little bit on the pod before, but I, you know, one of the things that I, I actually thought about um, over the process of, of, of considering this question was, you know, I, I do think that there are some growth issues, the, the lack of playing time, the lack of experience, uh, basically a missed year of development is, is, is tough. I think the hardest part at this point is the lost year of experience. And even though 
teams are playing, even though teams are, are working, and in a lot of cases, unless you're in Ontario, they're not getting the same exact kind of you know, experience. They're not getting the same kind of schedule. They're not getting the same kind of travel. Um, so all of those things kind of matter in terms of the, the development of the overall player. Um, so that is one of the things that I think is, is of concern. It's basically a lost year of that experience, and now you have to gain it somewhere else. And maybe you're behind the eight ball in a couple of other different areas of your game. Maybe, maybe your skating needs to improve further. Maybe there's a few other things that, that need to, to kind of uh, come through. But I, I think that this is a really tough year on so many fronts, and we're doing so much projecting on essentially a tampered sample, if you will. Um, because it's kind of the, it's not the norm. And so we're dealing with a bit of unprecedented nature here. Now, you know, you look at different things like a player like Dylan Gunther, for instance, who's one of the top prospects for this draft, averaging two points a game in the WHL. It's a, it's an incredible accomplishment. And I don't want to take anything away from that, but you also have to take it with a grain of salt, understanding that in a normal season, players are going and traveling great distances. You know, between games, there's a much more grueling schedule. There's less time for practice. There's other things that you you can't necessarily replicate from a normal season. So he's having an incredible amount of success. But what would previous players in the league do with that level of rest, of the ability to play similar teams all the time, where you're not playing outside of your division or outside of your pod? You know, the, the, the pace of the games is a little different. So all of those things have to come into play and have to be part of your process of evaluating these prospects. Because when you're saying, okay, well, I'm looking at the precedent for this type of season, I think in the WHL, it's kind of out the window. I'll still mention it because I think it bears mentioning that Gunther's a two-point-per-game player in a, in a season that's a, unlike any other. But you have to include that context that, yes, that's true, but we also have to keep that in mind that it's not necessarily the entire... Um, the entire uh, picture that, that we would normally have. So you, ha you have to take it with a, a slight grain of salt. Um, you know, I think the other thing, last, last season, I don't think that we lost so much of it that it wasn't beneficial to the players that participated in it. I think we got enough of a sample of the players. We saw that in the draft. They didn't feel like we were missing a lot. This year, it's, it's a different story. And we're dealing with different things. But, you know, I think you look at a lot of the Europeans, especially in Russia, were able to have a full season. Um, a lot of uh, the college hockey players got close to a full season. Again, not necessarily the same. Not a lot of non-conference play. So you're seeing a lot of the same teams and everything like that. Um, you know, in, in the USHL, it's been it's been a little bit more of a regular season. It hasn't been completely the same, but it's it's close enough to to what it normally is. So those are the leagues where I'm feeling less concerned. It's obviously the Canadian Hockey Leagues. And in the WHL, they've been playing, you know, the, the QMJHL got started a long time ago, but they've had so many stops and starts and gaps between play that it's really difficult to say, okay, well, this player was at the top of his game heading into this break, and then he looked different when he came out of that break. How much do you weigh that? So that that really makes the the evaluation process difficult. So that's a that was one of the more open ended questions that I got that I, I wanted to get kind of into because it, it is a good question and it, and it is something that teams are thinking about and teams are worried about and it's something that I'm thinking about as an evaluator and how do I how do I make this better how do I how do I figure this out to make sure that my rankings are the most accurate reflection of what's actually happening 
And I think that as you'll see, a lot of the public lists, there's such disparate opinions because we're all dealing with kind of a, a different set of standards for this season. So something to think about. All right, this is one that is is much more specific to the 2021 draft rankings. And as you'll see across the board, uh, Atu Ratu, the, the top finish prospect that so many people viewed coming into the season as a potential number one pick, ha has really tumbled out of the top 10 in a lot of cases. And this one comes from at, uh, th this is one of the things where with Twitter handles, like I'm not sure exactly where the, the gaps are. So uh, at DM Bongraced is what I'm going to, is how I'm going to pronounce it. And it could be several separate words, but it's all lowercase, so I don't know. So my apologies for butchering your Twitter handle. At uh, DM is what I'm just going to call you because those are the first two letters in your in your Twitter handle. So uh, I apologize for that. But anyway, the question is, what is the cause for Atu Ratu's fall in the ranking? Is it more regression or lack of progression? What is the ceiling now to see? Is he, is he a second-line center? So I would say the biggest difference from this season last year year it, it's not necessarily a lack of progression it's just a lack of it's definitely not a regression it, it's it's definitely closer to a lack of progression but I would say that it's 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 just he has not ever gotten into a rhythm this season I think there's a confidence issue there you just look at the way that he plays I thought he played so much more confidently with the puck last season I think the expectations of this year really hurt and then he didn't make the Finnish national team I think that's a huge factor getting cut from Finland's world junior team for underperforming. I mean, really that was what, you know, we kind of were led to believe that it was, it was a performance decision and to not have that opportunity when he was on the team last year is, is pretty telling. So if you watch him in the U20 games this year, he looks at just as dominant as he did last season. When you watch him in the pro games this year, He's not getting as many touches. He's not making as many plays. He's still being given opportunities to play at that level. And, and you see the flashes of brilliance, but you don't see it consistently enough to say this is a definitely a top guy. Whereas, you know, you see guys like William Eklund playing in the SHL. You see other guys playing in professionally like Brant Clark from Canada going to the Slovakian. And those guys are, are handling themselves well against professionals. Atu Ratu is not. I do think that there's the potential. If you've looked at the whole body of work, I think there are going to be teams out there that are that are going to say, I still think he's worth a chance. I still think he's a lottery pick. I still think that we got to take a chance on this guy because the, the skill set is what it is. But when you see a player tumble backwards a little bit, and, and again, this isn't, it's not really a regression in terms of skills. It's more just this point regression and different other things like that. It, he, is, he is teetering kind of on that that level where it's like, you know, I'd love to see what he could do with a full season, a regular season. What if things were normal? Those are all the types of questions that we ask. But I think, you know, we've seen guys in the past. I think Brandon Saad is an example I always bring up of a guy that that did not live up to expectations in his draft season, but still became a really, really good NHL player and probably in a redraft goes as high as, you know, the top 10 in his draft year, as opposed to being a second round draft prospect. So I think that Atu Ratu is not going to fall out of the first round. I don't think he's going to fall out of the top 20. Uh, but I do think that there's now a little bit less, a little more projecting. Is he a center at all? Is he better on the wing? Is he is he defensively responsible enough to be a center? Uh, does he do enough things? I think he can be a play driving center if, at, at his best. I do think that a, a, a number two center is, is a legitimate projection for him still. But there's a lot that needs to be sorted out, and I don't blame teams if they're not willing to take the risk. All right, this next one comes from at underscore Kenneth Clark. 
the difference between what, what's the difference between the junior leagues and which is your favorite to watch? Now, this is a great question because I, I actually get this often, and it's really it changes on a year by year basis. I think it really depends on the class, the level of play. It's all cyclical. Um, you know, if you're going to ask me in a given year, I'll say that my favorite league to watch is the USHL. My favorite league to watch is the OHL, the WHL. It really all depends. Um, I think the the year that Kirby Doc and Dylan Cousins were in, I'd say I would have said the WHL. It was a really fun league to watch. I watched a ton of their games and, you know, came away, you know, blown away by Kirby Doc over the course of a season. Uh, but, you know, to go back to the original point of the question and the, and the and the differences between the leagues is, you know, they are all different. Uh, you know, I think that the 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 USHL is a much harder league to score. And I think it mimics the college game much more than it does the NHL game uh, where it's uh, it, it's much more defensive minded. I think this year things have really opened up. A lot of players are producing at a high level. There are a lot of higher end offensive players and high end skill players in the league. I think that's always been the case. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's going to be interesting to see kind of where everybody ends up. But, but with, with the USHL, it's, it's kind of more, you know, defensive minded. They have a lot more teams that can really make it difficult to play against them and, and cause low scoring affairs in the OHL. You know, I think it, it's it's kind of the most complete of the leagues in terms of you know they have some really great defensemen they have some good good enough solid goaltending uh, on a year to year basis and then they have uh, usually the the players that are the most skilled you know by per 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 league I think the reason you get that is you know a lot of guys get sent back to the OHL that were drafted already so you're you're seeing a lot of guys playing in their second or third year of junior hockey. When you're when you're evaluating the draft eligibles, and there, you know, you look at some of the, the seasons that guys like Phil Tomasino and, and Nick Robertson, and um, so to be able to play against those types of players for the for the draft eligibles is really important. Um, you know, I think in the QMJHL, it's always been a difficult league for me to evaluate. Um, I, it's not the one. It, it's usually to the point where, you know, hey, there's you look at the top guys and you're trying to look at those second tier guys and they don't pop as much as those, those top tier guys. I think that that's a league where, you know, the top players can really separate themselves much more than they can at the, the OHL or WHL levels. Um, I think that there's been a, a bit of a misnomer in the queue. They've had a lot of high scoring games, but I don't think it's such an inept defensively league. You know, it's, I think that that's kind of become a trope over the years. Um, I, I think that that's just the, the players, the skill that they have in that league has really grown over the years. And if you're a really good goal scorer or, or a strong forward, you're going to have an opportunity to, to have some success in that league and put up some really nice numbers um, just by the by virtue of, you know, having some separation between the best. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a, in a normal year, I'd say that the one that I enjoy the most from an entertainment standpoint is the OHL. Uh, I just think that they typically have the highest concentration of elite players of, of the junior leagues. And so that's one where I'm definitely, if I'm watching those games, I have a little bit more fun, but I've seen some really bad, I've seen bad games and great games in every single league that I've covered. And, um, you know, I just think that there's, if we're looking at entertainment factor, the O is, is the one that, that really jumps out at me. All right. We have a, a college hockey related question here because I think this will impact college hockey for a long time. And this comes from at Benjamin A. Weiss. Given the NCAA is issuing a free year and the recently passed one-time transfer rule without having to sit, curious for your thoughts on the implications on both college recruiting as well as when NHL teams pull college players they have drafted. 
All right, so this is a really interesting one on a, on a number of fronts, and and I like that that Ben Benjamin included the NHL aspect of this because one of the things that players have not had a lot of in recent years in college athletics period is leverage, um, and there's a lot of varying opinions about how that leverage should be used, but I I think in general. I'm, I'm a proponent of the transfer rule because I think it empowers players a little bit more to make some more decisions that are very significant for the rest of their lives when it comes to their development, where they want to go with their hockey careers, where they want to go with their academic careers. I mean, there's not always a great fit. There have been plenty of instances where players have lost their scholarships or or have been, you know, had a spot and then it got it taken away and were asked to try to find somewhere else. So there are all these different things that come into play. On the NHL side, I do think that it, it gives teams a little bit more or players a little bit more leverage because usually the only piece of leverage that they had was, well, I'm just going to go to the OH or I'm just going to go to the NHL. You know, I'll sign my deal now and I'll play in the I'll play in the uh, um, I'll play in in the AHL and, and make money and, and that'll be fine and I'll just develop and I'll continue to move on. Um, now they have the opportunity to go to another school Um you know, I think that there are instances, and I know the thing that really concerns coaches at the moment is recruiting players, and then you know, basically, when they don't get what they want in terms of playing time, power play opportunities, all those different things, instead of working to earn that, they will transfer. Instead, that's their that that's just what they decide to do, and I totally get why coaches are. Are upset about that, but I think players with that mindset, the players that are unwilling to earn, or or you know, and sometimes they'll think that the the coach just doesn't like them. That th- things aren't fair. There are all those different kinds of things that that you know kind of come into play. You know, it's it's the players with that mindset that are that are you know I'm going to find what I need elsewhere. Don't always make it. You're looking for players that are self motivated that, that that will work to earn things that are that hold themselves accountable. So I think that it's more difficult for the players that are, you know, of the mindset that they can move around, but it does change recruiting too. It changes recruiting because now you have to think, am I going to get this kid for four years? Am I going to get this player to be, uh, you know, here? It, do, do they have the mental toughness to handle not being as, as big of a role, having as big of a role as a freshman? Where I think that this transfer portal is going to be a benefit to college hockey is I think that it's going to help spread the talent out a bit more. There are plenty of players that are are good enough to play top-line roles at other universities that are just stuck on a deep depth chart and can't play. And so I think that in the end, this could actually help competitive balance because you're not seeing as many players that are, say, transferring to Boston College. They are this year. I mean, they, there's quite a few. There seems to be a pipeline from Bowling Green to Boston College. So I guess that wasn't a good example. But, you know, I think that a lot of the big programs are still looking for the younger players. They're looking for the hot recruits that are coming in that are going to be blue chip guys that can can help sell their program uh, as opposed to going through the transfer portal. But as we've seen in the last Frozen Four, it helps to have an older team. So I do think that there are going to be uh, there's, you know, we're essentially in a free agency period of college hockey, which can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. And I, I know there's a lot of different varying opinions about what it should be. But I think that, you know, now that the players have some leverage, it is a good thing. I do think that, you know, it, it helps the players that, you know, you can't let one side hold all the cards. And so from a, from a, you know, kind of a freedom of movement perspective, it's good, but I do think it's going to make things a lot more challenging for college coaches as they try to keep teams together and build towards national championships. 
All right, the next one is actually an AHL-related question. I'm glad to get this. And 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 at Leo Bar Six, who's a, a big Kings fan, uh, asked if I could talk about the Quinton Byfield's progress with the Ontario Reign, and also any other the many other top prospects of the team, uh, and who has caught my eye. So, the Ontario Reign is one of the more interesting teams in the entire AHL. Now we're in an interesting year in the AHL period because. All of the players from the OHL that have nowhere to play that are drafted are allowed to play in the AHL. And one of them is Quinton Byfield, who more than likely would have been sent back to junior hockey this year uh, had things gone this way. But instead, he's getting to play in the AHL. And what I've what I've loved to see from Quinton is there is progression right now. He is he is adjusting to the professional game. He's appeared in 28 games. He's tied for the team lead with 19 points, including seven goals. He still has that speed. He's able to play at the pro pace. He's able to handle the pro physicality. Those are the big things that I think stand out to me right now. The other things, like just in terms of processing the game at a pro level, I think he's doing that. I think he's he's adjusting. Most of these guys are are, are finding ways to, to adjust to the pace, and I think it's really intriguing to see what they're doing. And the Kings have such an important position. They have a really, really young roster in in. Uh, in the AHL, and I'm looking at it right now on EliteProspects.com. You know, the average age of the team is 23.7 years old, which is pretty darn young for an AHL team. They they don't have as many of those 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 top veteran guys that that fill roster spots and and help keep you more competitive. But you know, you look at Byfield and the top scorers on this team, and they're all under 23. You know, they're all under 22. Some of them under 21. You've got Arthur Kaliev who's already gotten in some NHL games. He's got 19 points with Quinton Byfield. Rasmus Kupari, a, a speedy finish forward, 18 points. Akil Thomas, another you know guy. They have so many centers in their system. You know, I think the guy that, that struggled a bit but is really starting to turn things around in his season is Alex Turcott. And it takes time. You know, he did not have a great start to the year. He, you know, he had an injury that he was dealing with. He had a, a pretty decent World Juniors. I thought he was really good at the World Juniors. And then he comes in and he starts his pro career in the AHL. And, you know, it was a really, it was a struggle of the early part part for him to get his points. But now he's starting to produce. So you're seeing more of those guys get in there. And I think that the Kings have one of the most intriguing systems in all of hockey. They have basically one of the most important rebuilding plans because they've really tried to make uh, make the most of what they what they have in their system and now they're all able to play within the king system they're not all off in different places right now they have them all under one roof and they're they've got John Robleski who is a guy I've known for a long time and a tremendous developmental coach who really allows players to play within their strengths and, and I think that they're finding that now and and the other thing that I really like about what what uh, Robo has been doing there in in Ontario is there's an accountability. You can't just play. You you have to you have to learn. You have to make those those types of things. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that you have to get at the AHL level is accountability of the players. Everything has to be earned, but you still have to make sure that those guys are getting their reps. It's a very de- difficult balance. And I'm actually hoping to have John on the podcast uh, down the line here because he's a he's a fascinating individual on his own right. And uh, he's got a heck of a team there, and they, you know they're not winning a lot of games. You know, it's it's that's the thing when you have a young team in the AHL, not a lot of experience, so there's not a lot of uh, veterans to kind of bolster the young guys. But this is kind of a throw them to the fire and see how they do. And so far, I think that they're you're seeing positive development for the Ontario Reign. So if you are a, a fan of the Los Angeles Kings, the future remains bright, and you're going to have a lot of fun with uh, with those guys.
All right, our next question comes from at dhogan1982. Is this the best ever USHL year for draft eligible players? Seems like eight to 10 non-NTDB players could be taken in the top two rounds. Is this a trend or a sign of other leagues not playing? This is a really interesting question because I wanted to make sure and kind of go back and see what more recent drafts look like for the USHL. And I think, you know, uh, you're on to something here because... We look, you know, Matthew Coronado, Mackie Samuskevich are two of the guys from outside of the national team development program that could go in the first round. Obviously, the NTDP is, you know, plays in the in the league, but the U18s aren't necessarily a full participant. That That's just a portion of their schedule. Um, and, and so, you know, you kind of take in the different things into account. So if you're just looking purely at the USHL, but I think beyond the first round is where we could see a lot of noise made by USHL players um, in my personal rankings, guys like, uh, Matthew Nyes and and uh, um, Ayrton Martino and all these different players uh, that that could come in and guys that I, that weren't on the list like Jack Pert and Ryan Ufko and um, Jack Barr. You know there there are a lot of players that could be taken in the top three rounds. You know I think if we're looking back at more recent USHL drafts. You know, the 2015 draft is going to be hard to beat. There were obviously a lot of USA players, but there were also players with USHL ties. Now, he wasn't in the USHL at the time, but Ivan Provorov was drafted seventh overall in that draft. Um, did play for the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders. So he's one guy that was certainly in the mix. But beyond Provorov, there was also Kyle Connor from the Youngstown Phantoms going 17th overall and Brock Besser going 23rd overall to the Vancouver Canucks, and he played for the Waterloo Blackhawks. Um, so that was a very impressive draft. I think, you know, there were also other guys that had played in the league, Jacob Forsbacher Carlson, um, you know, so th there weren't as many guys in the second and third rounds from that draft, um, but though those were some interesting players nonetheless, and I think that that's one especially when you can have three first-rounders outside of the National Team Development Program, four if you include Provorov, who, who didn't play his draft season in the league. Um, that's a pretty darn good haul for the league, and, and that's one of the ones that I think kind of sticks out in my memory. But there's no question in my mind that this year's draft is going to have a lot of USHL presence just because of there were a lot of players that, that went there and played uh, that, that came you know from the CHL and were able to find homes there. You think about Cole Sillinger is going to be a guy that's going to be tied to the USHL. You know, obviously, the two guys I mentioned, Coronado and Sam Eskevich, and then a whole bunch more in the second and third rounds. So I do think that this is a year where the USHL is going to make noise. Do I think that part of it is because the other leagues weren't playing? Yes, but I also think that the quality of the league this season was at such a high. And you look at the way that the goals were scored, you, you know, I mean, the poor goalies in that league this year did not have an easy road. Uh, but, you know, I thought that we saw a lot of players step up. We saw, you know, guys come from outside the league and, and transition very well. We saw some guys come in from into the league and not transition well at all. Uh, so, I mean, it goes both ways. It shows how difficult a league the USHL can be for players that aren't familiar with it. But, you know, you look at some of the the, the, the secondary guys that are going to come out of this draft that, that are not NTDP players but, but quality USHL players. Uh, and I think we're going to look back at this year as definitely one of the highlights of uh, of the USHL in terms of the NHL draft. And it's just a, it's a phenomenal league. Uh, it really is. You know, we, we had that question earlier about the, the, the leagues that we enjoy watching. I mean, this the USHL is certainly the league that I'm closest to. It's the league that I get to see the most. So I nitpick it more maybe because of that. But it is a quality league where you're going to get great development and you're going to get some some really difficult games. And, you know, I, I live near the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders who did not play this season due to, to the arena being destroyed by a storm that also impacted 
my family as well um, and our, our property and, and everything else with, with the, the derecho in Iowa. Um, but I always enjoy going to watch their games to see the highly skilled teams because they're such a hard team to play against. And so you get a really good barometer for how these guys are going to perform under pressure. So that's what I like about the USHL. And yes, I do think this will be a very memorable season for the league. All right, so moving on, the next question comes from at El Pancari. So hello, Lucas. Uh, is is there a chance any of the Michigan Big Three in this year's draft turn pro, or do you expect them all to return to Ann Arbor for next season? I think this is a question that always comes up around the the draft, and especially when there are guys that are getting drafted out of college. And you know, I I would say, judged on everything I've seen so far, it's it's that. You know, Owen Power is is at this point the number one prospect in the draft. If he goes number one, I have a hard time believing that he'll be going back to school just because it seems like the the precedent has been set anymore that if you're the number one prospect, you have to go straight to the NHL. It's not always the way that it should be, uh, but that's the way that it will be probably for him if he is picked first overall. Now, if he doesn't, that'll be interesting. There's a little less pressure, uh, but I still think that there's a, a good chance that Owen Power goes directly to the NHL at the same time, you know, he, he is uh, in the mix to, to be number one, but we've seen guys go back for college seasons and really have success with that extra year. So, you know, could he go back and be a dominant player next season and then arrive at the NHL ready? Uh, we'll have to see, but I, I think that it's more likely that he'll end up in the NHL. As for Matty Beneers and Kent Johnson, who are both very high on the Hockey Sense draft rankings that you can see at hockeysense.substack.com, um, I believe that both potentially could come back. I think Beneers is is potentially ready to go to the next level, but I think that he's a guy that um, will take his time to make that decision. He was supposed to go to Harvard uh, to play college hockey. I think once you make that commitment, you're usually anticipating you're going to be in school for you know at least three to four years. Um, I wonder if this, that'll be the same for Michigan, but Beneers is, is a guy where, where school is important to him. Um, I think development is really important to him as well, and he'll, you know, have a lot of opportunities in front of him for for what he can do um, after that he's drafted. But that'll be an interesting call for him because I think it could really go either way. And as far as Kent Johnson is concerned, I fully expect him to return to Michigan next year. There's a lot of strength training that needs to be done for him. There's, you know, just in terms of getting ready uh, for for the NHL grind. I think that he has an opportunity to be a dominant player in college hockey next year, and, and no doubt in my mind that that he and, and Thomas Bordalo and, and some of the other guys from Michigan that I fully expect to go back for another season are going to be uh, contenders for the Hobie Baker. You know, they, they're going to have a really good team. They lost a lot from this team, but, uh, you know, losing Cam York, that's a big loss for that program just because he, he signed pro with Philadelphia. Um, but, you know, I think they have a lot of other guys that are going to be back. They're getting Luke Hughes this year. Um, you know, also getting Mackie Samuskevich from the Chicago Steel, who's a potential first-round draft prospect. So a lot to like about this particular draft class. And I think that, uh, you know, for Michigan, I think that we could see Power move on to the NHL. But I, I be, would not be surprised to see the other two come back to Michigan next season. So we'll see where that stands. All right, now for a little bit of fr frivolity and uh, <laughs> just fun because uh, I basically opened it up for any kind of questions. And so this one comes from at text. SR underscore Tanner one Tanner Wilson could could we see a new group of hockey movies TV streaming shows etc from the success of Mighty Ducks Game Changers also what NHL star would you want to see in a movie all right so <laughs> the if you've been following me on Twitter you know I've got a little bit going on right now where I've been uh, 
promoting the Mighty Ducks Game Changers, mainly because they sent a bunch of influencers jerseys. Um, and I was like, I would like a jersey. So I started doing it kind of as a joke. And um, But at the same time, I actually do enjoy the show. It's it's kind of funny. It's on Disney+. Plus. And, um, you know, I have a young hockey player now who I'm, I'm trying to get into the show. And, and I remember how much the original Mighty Ducks movies meant to me as a kid. Um, so to answer Tanner's question, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see more stuff. I mean, we're going to have a, a streaming show, a documentary series on, I believe on Amazon starring the, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs and kind of a behind the scenes, 24 seven kind of thing. I'll be very interested to see the quality of that. I think, you know, we've got a little bit of fatigue on the behind the scenes shows just because the first 24 seven that they did was so unique uh, on HBO back when it was the 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 Capitals and the Penguins playing for the first uh, you're playing for the Winter Classic and I was just thinking about how cool that whole thing was and so different and such a unique view so I, I think we could see stuff like that you know we've obviously we just had Tommy Haynes on he's got a hockey documentary coming out um, I know of a couple other hockey documentaries in the works as well and then there's also some stuff on Netflix where there's a hockey player who goes to England for some reason. Um, so I, you know, I, it was like he he's going to advance his career. Um, but I mean, I guess that could that could be a thing. Um, so there is a lot there, and you know, I just think about back when the Mighty Ducks first came out, and and it actually that movie, that series of movies, had a significant impact on growth in hockey in the United States because it also coincided with the NHL expanding to non-traditional markets. It was right on the heels of Wayne Gretzky going to Los Angeles. So it was kind of this perfect storm. And I think without that, you know, the momentum that hockey built in the mid nineties, that's a really important thing. So I, I, Hey, I am always up for more hockey content. I I will watch any hockey movie. I will watch any hockey show, except for maybe that one on Netflix that I, I, I talked about. It doesn't, doesn't look that good, but there's a lot of other things out there. And I, I think that the more hockey pop culture uh, or hockey can ingrain itself in pop culture, the better because it just opens up the game to more fans. So thank you for that question. And oh, and as far as an NHL star that I would want to see in a movie, um, I would say probably Keith Yandel because I think he'd be hilarious uh, just because he is a funny person in general. And uh, I'm a big fan of comedy. So I'm going to say Keith Yandel for an NHL star I'd like to see in a movie, probably playing himself. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, another Mighty Ducks related question. This comes from Stephen Ellis of the Hockey News. Uh, and Stephen asks, which Mighty Ducks jersey is the best? And then he sent me some pictures of the, the District 5 jersey from the original Mighty Ducks movie. The uh, the NHL, the first Mighty Ducks jersey that, that had you know the diagonal striping and the, the goalie mask on it and that they used in the D2. And then also the jerseys that the Mighty Ducks are using in Game Changers on Disney+. Plus. And let me just say for the record... Uh, of all the things in Disney Plus's show, the fact that the Mighty Ducks are the bad guys is is jarring, but it's also, uh, I would not be caught dead in one of those jerseys. They are by far the worst. So I, I actually have to say, I have, a, I have a, a real answer for this because um, I got a Mighty Ducks jersey up and, and the eggplant ones. And yes, it was eggplant. Uh, that was the color of the jersey. It wasn't purple. It was eggplant. Let's get that clear. Um, and I got one of those for my 10th birthday, and it was probably one of my favorite things that I ever got for a birthday present. Um, so I always was partial to the the, the whites and, and eggplant jerseys that they wore originally in the NHL and uh, still would love to see them come back because they were great. So, uh, But also, you know, that can't beat the original, the District 5, Mr. Ducksworth. You know, he had one in a frame. I'd love to get one of, of my own in a frame someday. Uh, Disney Plus, if you're listening to this. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a good one too. 
the next question comes from uh, Russ Cohen at Sportsology. He asked me if I have purchased my forged and fire knives yet. And if you guys were watching the 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 World Junior Championship in the U.S. and you were watching on NHL Network, there are these set of knives, this infomercial where they're forged and fire knives, and this guy to show the strength of the knife and the and the sharpness and the ability to cut just takes this gigantic fish and just slices it in half. And um, I actually did say that that I was going to buy one of those. And unfortunately, Russ, I haven't yet. But uh, Forged and Fire Knife people, if you are listening to this podcast, I am always open to uh, free samples. So, um, yeah, let's try that. All right. Our final question comes from at mattymo 26 What is the highest thread count in your closet? Now, I had said jokingly on... Twitter that I would offer fashion advice if, you know, if that was one of the options that if you were going to ask a question. And uh, to answer Matty Moe's question, I just looked, um, I believe, and this is a total guess because I wasn't going to look through my entire closet, but I do have a suit coat that is uh, uh, super 130s and uh, was was made in Italy. So uh, it, at least that's what it says on the tag. And I'm going to go with that. Uh, so super 130s. Thank you, Maddie, for that great question about fashion and and actually the 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 funny story about that coat and i guess it's not really funny is like i basically bought that thinking that i was gonna be part of the frozen four broadcasts last season i got them right before and what happens everything gets canceled i have this brand new suit coat and i couldn't wear it so i did wear it to this uh this frozen four and i'll have occasion to wear it again and that brings me to my next point the q a is over but we're moving on really quickly to talk about what's coming up next. And I've mentioned on the last two podcasts, but I did want to mention it a little bit further, is the Men's World Under-18 Championship is set to go. Uh, it starts on April 26th. You can watch the entire tournament, uh, save for a few games that I believe will be on NHL Network this year, but you can watch it on HockeyTV.com. And now why am I giving Hockey TV a plug? Well, they have been nice enough to ask me to be the game analyst for all the games that will be taking place in uh, in Comerica Center in Frisco, Texas, which is where the U.S. and Russia and Finland will be. So I will be on the call for those games on Hockey TV. So if you like the podcast and you say, hey, this guy might actually make a good game analyst, and you're probably not saying that. But if you did, um, I'm so thrilled to be able to go to that and to call the games. I'll be working with, uh, I believe, Jim Rich in, from, from Minnesota. He's a, 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 an experienced play-by-play guy that has also done uh, the World Juniors, and a number of other high-profile hockey events. So uh, really excited to be joining that broadcast and to call all the U.S. games, but also um, all the games that will be taking place in that arena specifically, save for the ones that will be on NHL Network, which I believe should be a TSN simulcast. So really excited to do that. So I'll have occasion to wear my my Super 130s uh, coat again uh, that, that I'm sure at Mo 26 will appreciate. So again, I'll be really excited to be in Texas for this event, but as we know with all of these events that have happened over these last couple of years, or this last year in COVID times, is anything can happen at any moment and nothing is guaranteed. So we're obviously keeping our fingers crossed. Um, The testing protocol is underway in Texas. All of the teams arrived on Monday, from what I understand, or at least were supposed to arrive on Monday. Um, That and, And Canada and the U.S. had actually arrived a little bit earlier. We learned on Monday, however, that Cole Sillinger, a top prospect for the 2021 NHL Draft, currently playing for the Sioux Falls Stampede in the USHL, 
uh, previously played before that with the Medicine Hat Tigers, which is the team that he will go back to after this season. Uh, he will not be able to play in the tournament, and it w- there were no reasons given. However, TSN's Bob McKenzie, uh, a former guest of this podcast, reported that Sillinger's uh, issue was a COVID protocol issue. And so, as we learned with the World Juniors, is that you know a single positive test at this stage can essentially ne- knock you out of the tournament, um, which is really unfortunate. And especially for a player like Sillinger, who's, you know, a dual U.S. Canadian citizen. This was going to be his first IIHF event. Um, and, you know, he is uh, uh, a really good player. And so Canada's going to miss him. I think they'll be able to, to weather the loss. But still, that's a guy that they anticipated would be playing a pretty significant role for them at this tournament. So no Cole Sillinger. Also, there were some other random issues. Uh, <laughs> one of the stories that came out of this tournament was... Uh, Ivan Marashnashenko, who's a who is a 17-year-old player. He's an underage player for this tournament. Um, you know, he's he's a U17 um, by definition of 2004 birth year. He was not going to be allowed into the country, as we learned from reports in Russian media. However, the Russian Hockey Federation, uh, in concert with the IIHF, the USOC, USA Hockey, were able to get that sorted out, and Marashnashenko will now be able to come. To Play. He was actually supposed to be in the U.S. already. He's supposed to get a visa to play for the Muskegon Lumberjacks. For whatever reason, that was denied um, when he tried to come over earlier in the year. And then there was an also, from what I understand, the issue. There's nothing really nefarious about why he couldn't come for the world under under 18s, but it's now sorted out. It was sounds more like it was a paperwork issue more than anything else. Um, but it had to get you know reviewed, and they had to get a second second opinion or whatever it all got taken care of and now one of the top uh, u17 players in the world will be in the tournament uh, he was the captain for russia's youth olympics team a couple years ago when he and matvey michkov uh, lit things up and that brings me to my next point we're we're going to the world under 18s and we're obviously excited excited about the the players that are in the 2021 draft class but we're also really excited to see the guys from beyond that we already know that you know, a guy I mentioned, Marashashenko, is 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 in the tournament now. There's also Matvey Michkov, who's not draft eligible until 2023. Same with Connor Bedard, he's playing for Canada. Shane Wright, who we know, play, 2022 draft eligible. Jack Hughes, the new Jack Hughes, not the same one that plays for the New Jersey Devils right now, and not related to Luke Hughes, who unfortunately won't be in the tournament. But Jack Hughes is a 2022 draft prospect. He's healthy and able to play for Team USA in this tournament. So there's a lot of future talent on display in addition to all of the guys that are age eligible for the first time um, in this tournament to play as U18s and really excited to see that and and this tournament has been such a proving ground for those young players you know this is the place where I first saw um, Connor McDavid as a 15 year old saw Alexander Barkov play in this tournament as a 15 year old and so some of these younger guys like a Connor Bedard this is a real opportunity to showcase to the world what what you know people in their respective leagues have been seeing and uh, to have him and, and Michkov, who had a historic season in Russia's Junior League this year, scoring uh, more goals than anybody had previously, uh, breaking Nikita Kucherov's record um, in the MHL. I mean, this is a pretty a pretty special uh, class of players. But, you know, this is a tournament that I've been to many, many times. First, when I was working for USA Hockey, later as a freelancer. And then most recently with, with ESPN and now really excited to go back with Hockey TV. And have the opportunity to watch this tournament because it really is the proving ground for the World Juniors. It's obviously big for the draft and it's 
um, a, a great international event that's been used as a building block, and we're going to have to wait and see uh, what comes out. I'm going to have a little bit more of a uh, kind of not so much a preview next week, but more of a U18 kind of what to watch for. Um, we'll also have a full, full preview for subscribers on uh, hockeysense.substack.com, which will really break down every single team in the tournament, the prospects that you need to know about, um, and all those different things. So really excited about that. Also coming up, there was a little bit of news this week uh, about the Women's World Championship and specifically Team USA, who is now in their pre-tournament camp. Um, and the, the Women's World Championship will take place in Nova Scotia and with, with that starting in early May. Really excited about that. We're going to definitely talk about that event more in future podcasts. But the news that broke this week is that Bob Corkum had stepped down as Team USA's head coach for the Women's World Championship. And that's significant because obviously this is a huge event for preparation for the 2022 Olympic Winter Games and, and obviously an opportunity for the U.S. to defend their gold medal. Uh, Corkum stepped down. He did not, there was no real significant reason given by USA Hockey. They have not really commented on it publicly beyond what was in their press release. However, uh, Corkum did tell the Associated Press that he uh, did not feel comfortable with the COVID protocols. Now, in order for the team to do what they have to do to be able eligible to play, there's quite a bit of protocol that they're going to have to follow in the build-up to the tournament, during the tournament, and Corkum cited discomfort with that. And it, it was a very surprising announcement. However, Joel Johnson is now the head coach of Team USA, and I, I know I've talked to a lot of people in, in women's hockey circles about him. They're excited about having somebody that's really been in the women's national team program for some time, and, and I think that a lot of people are excited that he is going to be the interim head coach. So he will be the head coach for the World Championship. You know, he's been in the national program for a while. He's coached at at, at big time universities, and um, you know, so there's a really good opportunity there for for him to do that. But but you know, Bob Corkum stepping away at this time, um, it was a bit of a strange thing. But uh, we're certainly thinking that the the women's team is in good hands with Joel Johnson, and we cannot wait for that tournament. All right, well, I think that's just about going to do it for me on this week's episode of Talking Hockey Sense. If you made it this far, congratulations. I really do appreciate it. Um, it's been so great to, to be able to talk with you every single week. And I do want to remind you again, please subscribe to the podcast. Like, rate, review it. If you you know if you can give us five stars, that's great because that helps us move up the, the iTunes charts. It, it really does uh, help this grow. And just a reminder to also subscribe to hockeysense.substack.com. That's Hockey Sense with Chris Peters. Um, you can also get there at chrispetershockey.com. So if you can uh, support that website, you will also support this podcast. And we could potentially keep it ad-free if, if the subscriptions roll in enough uh, to, to, to not have many ads. Aside from me just saying, please subscribe. That's uh, pretty much the only ad that I have. So uh, happy to do it more for myself than, than for somebody else. But anyways, thanks again, guys, for joining us on this week's episode of Talking Hockey Sense. My name is Chris Peters, and we'll catch you next time.